be with you again this evening and to see you back here. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John. I do love that hymn. I mentioned that last week. And it's um, uh, mainly, I mean, the tune is, is very nice, but mainly because of the words. And I, I love it because of the way that it so clearly presents the narrative of the Gospels. That you read it and you feel like you're reading Matthew or Mark in summary form. It's a really beautiful way of telling, uh, telling that story. And so I hope that when we sing those, you'll join me in reflecting on and thinking about the words that we're saying as we're singing them. Well, as you find your place in 1 John, I want to uh, give you an opening illustration, an illustration that I think will help to make the point or at least to set the context of why the issues that John presents us with in this letter are so pressing. And that illustration is something that I'm sure is familiar to you if you read the news or if you've been around for any time, and it's that of a Ponzi scheme. If you don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, it's basically a scheme where some person presents himself as a brilliant investor, and he makes the case that if you give him your money to invest, then he will get you returns that you simply can't get from any other investment firm. And the way that he works is that he takes the money that he's receiving and he uses that to pay out the proceeds to people who invested prior. Eventually, it's a house of cards. It all comes crashing down. The person is revealed to have been a fraud. The person is revealed to have been a liar. But, sadly for those people who were taken in the fraud, they lose perhaps even their whole life savings, at least a good bit of money. And they're left thinking, why didn't I see this coming? Why didn't I see the signs? You see, always in retrospect, as you look back on this fraud, back on the charlatan, and you see that this person was probably someone with great charisma, a person who exuded tremendous confidence, and yet there were signs all along the way that this person was an imposter. He was not really a genuine investor. In the same way, this illustra- as in this illustration, as we come to John, we find that he addresses a situation where a church has been beset by false teachers. And these individuals, you might call them the secessionists. That is, they are people who rose up within the church and then departed from the church, but they left wreckage in their wake. They took some with them, it seems, who followed them on the strength of their charisma, on the strength of their personalities, on the... Uh, on the basis of the confidence that they expressed. And the people who are left behind in this early church are wondering, are asking questions about what is true faith. Their, their, their faith is rocked in a way where they're caused perhaps to doubt. They're caused to lose assurance and to wonder if they're really on the right path, if they're really on the way that leads to eternal life. And so John writes to them to encourage them, to assure them of their faith and their Uh, the the fact that they possess eternal life if they continue in faith. And he writes also to help them to identify, ahead of time really, to identify the true and the false, the imposter and the fraud, to distinguish that person from the genuine teacher, the genuine uh, believer in the gospel. And so as we come to John then, we continue reading in verse 5, and we see that John is going to 
deliver to us a first test, a way by which we might test the genuineness of others and also of ourselves. Here, the Apostle John writes, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father in heaven, we come to you this evening, this Lord's Day, and we pray that you would come and be among us now, that you would send your Spirit to illumine our, your Word to us, to give us understanding, to give us wisdom that we might learn from this epistle how we might test the genuineness of teachers and also test our own genuineness so that we might not be unsettled by your word but rather draw encouragement from it, that we might be comforted and encouraged to know that you have given us certain and sure ways that we might know that we are indeed walking in the light, that we are indeed your children and have the privilege, the gracious privilege of calling you our Father. So, Father, we pray for this grace now. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, as we begin in 1 John, we see that John begins with a simple principle, a simple teaching in verse 5, that he claims and says that he received from the Lord. That is, if you recall from the last time we were in 1 John two weeks ago, he spoke about a message, a message that the apostles had received and were proclaiming. And he goes on from there to say, this is the message. And he says that it's a message that we have heard from him. That is, a message that we have heard from Jesus himself. A message that we have heard from our Lord. And he says that this message we also proclaim to you. And so, from the very beginning, we know that we have a genuine testimony, a genuine preaching of the gospel received from Jesus, passed on through his apostles, and delivered to us. That's the claim that John registers for us. It's a claim that is reliable and is true, as we saw two weeks ago. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, he says, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He begins, therefore, with the character of God. He begins with God's attributes. And he uses this phrase, God is light, because it's such a powerful and helpful summary of so much of what God is in his being, in his nature. To say that God is light 
is to say that God is perfect. It's to say that God is holy. It's to acknowledge that God knows all things, that He sees all things. That when He comes and makes His presence known, He is the great revealer of all things. To say that God is light is a summary way to speak about His perfection. And John makes this point quite clear because he attaches to this positive statement that God is light, a negative statement. In Him is no darkness at all. You see, lest we think that God is somehow only some light, or some light admixed with darkness, John warns us off of that. There is no darkness whatsoever at all in Him. There is no imperfection. There is no unholiness. There is no unrighteousness. There is no falseness. God is true and perfect and righteous and holy in every way. This is so important in John's letter. It's so important to see this because throughout this letter, John is going to take two statements about what God is. And over and over again, he's going to apply those statements in our lives as Christians. The first one we just found, God is light. And the second one will come later in this letter, God is love. That God is light and God is love. And these two attributes stand as a kind of summary for all that God is in His perfection and His grace to us. And throughout this letter, John is going to apply these things to us. Because we as Christians are brought into the family of God. We've been hearing that proclaimed and we've been reading that on Sunday mornings in the last few weeks as we've looked to Galatians and we looked to Luke chapter 2 and we found that the Gentiles and the Jews alike are heirs of the promises of God and have come into His family as inheritors of a great promise, as though we are all children of God to inherit His promise. And yet, if we are in this family then, if we have been adopted as sons and daughters, as children of the Lord, then we ought to live as members of the family. Life in the family requires certain things of us. We're to be like our Heavenly Father. Now we see this idea consistently through Scripture. In the Old Testament, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 20, you don't need to turn there, you can simply listen to it. I'm sure many of you have this memorized. But here in Leviticus chapter 20, the Lord says this to the people of Israel. In verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You see, when God gave Israel the law and, and declared them to be His children, that is, a people for His own possession, He called them to become imitators of Him, to be like Him, to be set apart and different from the nations. He said, you shall be holy as I am holy. And in the same way, when Jesus stood on the mountain and delivered that great sermon in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, there near the end of chapter 5, we read these words from our Lord in verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then why? so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good 
and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, the principle on which Jesus is operating, the one that we saw in Leviticus, is that if we are God's children, we are called to be like Him. We are called to bear the family trait, if you will, or to live like members of the family. That calls for us to imitate Him. It calls for us to honor the family name. That is, to honor our Lord. And yet, we have to recognize the simple fact that we all fall short of this standard. When Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, He knows full well that none of us is perfect, that we all fall short. As it's written, all have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, we are imperfect and we fall short of this standard. And so there's something else that is required of us. That is, to live in light of the fact that God is light is not something that we can simply fulfill by being perfect because we cannot be perfect. And so, what it entails then is that we live as though we are people who are not hiding in the darkness, who are not covering our sin, you see, who are not putting it under the bed, as it were, to hide it from someone else. But we live out in the open. We are children of God. He is light. And we ought to live as those who come into the light, bringing all of our failings and all of our faults and all of our struggles before the Lord with an inner integrity in our lives, with an honesty about all of these things. We ought to live our lives, to put it simply, as people who make a habit of confessing our sins to the Lord. And this is the initial test that John gives us by which we can discern the true teacher, the true believer, from the false teacher and the false believer. Is this person one who walks in the light? How? By living a life of continual confession and repentance. You see, John goes on to say, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. and We do not practice the truth. Now, we need to be able to discern the lie we need to be able to see it in ourselves, and we also need to be able to see it in others. And he begins with this summary way of describing it, that one who claims to have fellowship with the God who is light and yet lives a life that can only be described as walking in darkness is a, is a liar. He's a person who is not characterized by an inner integrity, by a, uh, a life that is consistent with what is true. It's not so much about truth that is known in the mind, it's, so, it's, it's rather about living a life that is consistent with what is really the truth, with what is really the case. A life that is consistent with what's true about us and true about God. If I say I have fellowship with God and I walk in the darkness, I'm a liar. Because in God there is no darkness whatsoever. Now there are ways in which I can walk in the darkness. Light and darkness very often in the New Testament, are used metaphorically, are used symbolically in a variety of ways. 
We saw this morning how light can speak of the revelation that God has made known to His people. That Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That is that He makes it known. He makes known God's gracious purposes in Himself. But light can also speak of a kind of godliness of life, a purity of life. On the flip side, darkness is related to wrongdoing. Just as much as darkness can be related to uh, living in ignorance. So, for instance, on the one hand, Paul can, can speak of the Gentiles as having formerly lived in darkness. That is, they did not have God's revelation. And yet, on the other hand, one who lives in darkness could be one who is just pursuing a life of sin, a life of pleasure in this world, a life of wickedness, you see. And those two things are not uh, unrelated. They often go very much together. To live in darkness in this context is primarily to live a life of wanton sin, to pursue sin with one's whole being. That's what John in this context is speaking about when he talks about someone who walks in the darkness. But there is a corollary to um, the idea of walking in ignorance as well. For someone who walks in the darkness and claims to have fellowship also doesn't perceive the true nature of things. Just as a person who walks through a room without any lights on cannot see where he's going and does not know if there's an obstacle before him. A person who claims fellowship while pursuing sin as his reason to be is like a person walking in a dark place. There are other ways in which he expresses that darkness. There's other ways that he walks in the darkness as it is. If we skip ahead, we'll pass over some of these verses and come back to them in time. But John is going to alternate between negative and positive statements. And let's look at the negative statements alone first. And there we see that this life of darkness is a life of denial. John states this in two ways. In verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, both of these verses begin with a very similar statement. There's slight differences in the tense of the verb that John uses, and yet the same concept is indicated. This is not necessarily a person in John's context, a person who says, I've never sinned at all in my life, nor is it necessarily a person who says, I'm unaffected by the fall. Rather, most likely what John is referring to is a person who says, now that I have fellowship with God, I no longer sin in my life. I've moved on from that. Now I live a life of sinless perfection. I don't have anything to repent of. I don't have any errors in my life. I don't have anything to confess in my life. That's what these people are most likely saying. But this can be applied to all kinds of ways in which we live in denial of sin. It could be a person who simply doesn't want to reckon with the consequences of a sinful habit, a sinful pattern of life. That person hides these things. Maybe it could be something like having a, a drug addiction, having a problem with alcohol, 
where someone drinks too much and they can't control it and they, they feel unable to do anything about it. And yet, in that, they're constantly hiding it. They're constantly covering it up. They're constantly pretending like there's no problem in their life. And John is challenging us as Christians that we ought not to live our lives like that. The path to forgiveness is through repentance, which requires us to be open about these things. Likewise, the path to recovery from these challenges in our lives, a besetting sin of some sort, also leads through confession and repentance. But the person who rather lives in denial, saying it's not really so much of a problem, it's not really having any effect in my life, you know what, it's not really sin at all. It's no big deal. That is a life of denial. It's not quite necessarily as serious as what John sees in his context with the false teachers who are adamant and confident that they are perfect. This is more of the denial that we often see in our own lives as Christians where we struggle with the need to confess when the consequences of confession might be difficult to deal with. And yet John is calling all of us not to live a life of denial. For we are children of God and God is light. We ought to live our lives as those who walk in the light. You see, if we live this life of denial, there are two consequences that are far worse than any consequence that can arise from confessing our sins. The first is that we deceive ourselves. We trap ourselves in a lie, and we begin to believe it, and we deceive ourselves, John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and then the consequence of that is that the truth is not in us. Our lives are characterized not by truth and integrity, but are characterized by a lie and deceit. And we catch ourselves in the deceit, even deceiving ourselves. And the second consequence is that we say something blasphemous about God. If we say we have not sinned, John says, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, John is not saying that God becomes a liar. God cannot lie. That's very explicitly stated in Scripture. You see, there are things God cannot do. He cannot act against His nature. And God is truthful. We saw it here. He's light. And in Him is no darkness at all. That means He's utterly truthful. He cannot lie. And so what John is saying here is not so much that He becomes a liar, but we make Him out to be a liar. We accuse God of being a liar, do you see, if we claim to be free from sin. For God says something very different about us. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And He likewise teaches us, even after we've come to Christ, even after we've come into a relationship with Christ, in His Word, that we must live a life that is characterized by confession and repentance because we still live in this flesh, in this sinful flesh, frail as it is. We still struggle with sin. We must continue to grow in holiness, but that continuing growth will be just that, continuing. It will be a lifelong endeavor to become more and more like Christ. So we ought not to claim that we have, so to say, graduated from our sinfulness. For such a thing will not happen, this side of death or Christ's coming. There will be a day when we are fully freed from sin and from its effects. But that day 
has not yet come. And so we ought to say the things that God says. We ought to agree with Him. That is the nature of confession, you see. It's to agree with God. It's to say what He says. And He says that you and I are sinners. He says that you and I must live lives of repentance. So we ought not to make Him out to be a liar. For such a life of denial is a life lived in the darkness. But what does it mean then to live a life in the light? What does that look like? I've already stated that it means that we live our lives as people who are repentant. That is, the continual pattern of our life should be one of repentance and confession of sin. Now, confession, I said, was agreement with God. We also need to recognize some other aspects of what confession is. It's an acknowledgement of our sin. It's a sincere act. When I confess my sin, I don't just do it as a duty. I don't just do it because someone told me I have to. But I do it with sincerity of heart. I'm really grieved over my sin. Otherwise, it's not really confession. What I'm saying is it's not just some kind of religious ritual that we perform that somehow earns us favor because we say the right words or we do it the right way. It's a sincere act of agreement with God. It's also personal. You don't need to come to me or anyone else to confess your sins. We'll come to that later as we come to verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. We'll see why that is. But it's something where it's personal, where you can go directly to the Lord our God, and you can go directly to Him in prayer and confess your sins and set Him before you, set your sins before Him. That's a great privilege that we have as children of God. And if we're to walk in the light, we ought to make it a practice in our lives, going to the Lord regularly, day by day, and laying before Him our sins and our, 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 our struggles and confessing them to, to Him and seeking His help and seeking the Spirit's aid so that the Spirit might produce His fruit in us and cause us to grow in holiness. And you don't need me to do that for you. I can't do that for you. I don't have the inside track. This is one of the problems with the false teachers and false teachers in any age is they communicate this idea that they've got the inside track and if you just come to me they would say, I can go to God for you because I have fellowship with Him. I'm one of the knowers. I'm one of the seers. I'm one of the righteous ones. So maybe just give me a little money or give me you know, a little bit of your time or a little fame or something like that, and I've got the inside track for you. And that's a false teaching. And in every age, we see that kind of thing. We need to remember confession is not something where I need someone else to mediate that confession to God for me. But rather it's personal and I can go directly to Him. And as, as I've said, it's also a continual pattern of our lives. That's what confession is. And if we're to walk in the light, John teaches us, that needs to be the practice of our lives. In verse 6 he says, if we say we excuse me, in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. 
Again in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There we have two statements that very clearly show us what it means to walk in the light in terms of confession and in terms of faith in Christ. Now, as we continue our study in this letter, we need to be careful not to get the wrong idea. You see, sometimes John can be confusing. If you turn over, for instance, to 1 John chapter 3, in verse 6, we read this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, some of you have a different translation. In the New King James Version, for instance, we read this, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And in English, that sure makes it sound like a Christian does stop sinning. But one of the challenges is that languages, they don't translate one for one. And here John uses verbs that communicate a continual action, which is why the English Standard Version has added the words that we saw in verse 6. This, these words, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And in other places you'll see the words, makes a practice of sinning. Of course, those words, makes a practice or keeps on, aren't in the original text. But in English, we need helper words, words that help the verb communicate the thing that it's meant to communicate. But I have a simpler principle that doesn't require you to know Greek. And I've used this principle with youth groups and with others. It's the principle that John is not stupid. It's the principle that John is not stupid. And what I mean is this. He has not forgotten what he wrote less than a page earlier. Okay? If John, in the first chapter, is teaching us to confess our sins, and he's teaching us to make a continual practice of confessing our sins, and then a few sentences down the way, says no one who has fellowship with God sins. We need to recognize that somehow these things go together. They're not contradictory. For John is not stupid. Of course, it's the Word of God, too, and so it's without error. But the reason why these things go together is because what he's communicating is a continual action. No Christian lives his life by continually pursuing wanton sin. Right? No Christian says, I have the grace of God. I have the blood of Jesus. So I'm going to just go live my life however I please. And I'm not going to worry about the consequences. I'm not going to worry about what the Bible says. Because I believed and I was baptized. I'm good. That is not a thing a Christian says. A Christian grieves at his sin. A Christian laments the fact that he does not always follow God's word. And in that grief, that godly grief, he looks to the one who can save him. He looks to the one who can cleanse him of his sin. And he confesses his sin before a holy God and seeks the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the attitude that undergirds a heart of real confession. Not someone who says, I'll confess my sins in the morning and do them again in the afternoon, and I'll wake up and rinse, repeat, 
once more tomorrow. Our lives ought to be characterized not by continual pursuit of sin, but continual pursuit of holiness through confession and repentance. And John assures us that if that is the character of our lives, that we can trust that God is faithful and that God is just to forgive us of all of our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the reason why God is faithful to do that, because He's promised to do that, and God is light, He is always true. There is no falseness in Him. So when He makes a promise to forgive the repentant person, He keeps that promise every time. And He's not only faithful to do it, He's just to do it. You see, that's a big problem. How can a holy God simply forgive sins and still be just? And yet, John assures us that God is just to forgive us our sins. And the reason is because of the blood of Jesus. The reason is what he said in verse 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. And John wants to make this point abundantly clear. And so in chapter 2, he comes back to it saying, My little children, that, he, that is, he addresses this group of Christians with terms of endearment. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John does not want them to pursue sin in their lives. He doesn't want them to sin. But, he says, if anyone does sin, John acknowledges that we all sin and we all will. But if anyone does sin, we know that we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. And this is so important to see because, as I was saying earlier, the false teachers would situate themselves as the, the go-betweens, the people who can stand between man and God and mediate for them because they know they have special knowledge or they have special ability or they have a special righteousness. And John is saying, they're not the one that you need. You have an advocate. His name is Jesus Christ, and He is the righteous one. They're not truly righteous. They're not truly perfect. But Jesus Christ is the one who doesn't just walk in the light. He is the light. The earliest Christians put this language in their creeds. They confessed that Jesus Christ is God of God and light of light. That He is everything that the Father is in His nature and in His attributes. He indeed is one with the Father. He indeed is God Himself. And He is our advocate with the Father. That word conveys this idea that He is pleading our case. He's like our lawyer. He's like our mediator. And when we stand before the holy and righteous judge of all the universe, our advocate, Jesus Christ, will plead this. He will stand in our place before the Father and He will say, I am not just their advocate, but I made propitiation for them. There's another big word there. That is, I was the one to make you propitious, O Lord. I'm the one who turned away your wrath, to put it more simply. I'm the one who stood in their place and absorbed all of your holy wrath and your just wrath that was to be poured out on sinners. That's what Jesus did for us when He hung on the cross. We deserved the wrath of God and He took it fully 
in himself. Because he's our advocate, and because his plea is that he is our substitute who made propitiation for us, as John says, we know that we have a certain salvation. We know that we can be forgiven without compromising the perfect justice of our God. God is light, so He's perfectly just. God is light, so He's completely faithful. He's promised to forgive, and yet His justice demands a penalty for sin. And the solution is that the perfect Lamb of God, who is light from light, gave His life for us on the cross. And through faith in Him, He cleanses us from all of our sin. Through faith in Him, through repentance and confession, He makes us righteous. He declares us, God the Father declares us righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And that's the certain hope that we have. If you want to know who is the true teacher, who is the true believer, it's the person who proclaims that message that John has proclaimed here. The person that proclaims a message of faith in Christ, a message of grace from God, a message of the seriousness of sin, and yet the certainty of forgiveness for those who live a life of confession and repentance. But it's not just the person who proclaims it. It's the person who lives it. It's the person whose own life is characterized by that continual pursuit of holiness that comes through the same things, through faith and through confession and repentance. This is an enduring test, one that we can use again and again. How can I know that? How can I say that? But one of the fascinating things about this letter is the question of who are the false teachers in John's context? You see, in, if you pick up a commentary on John's letters or you find any book, there will be a great deal of discussion about this question in, its, in the early chapters. Because later on in, a, in the second century, a heresy arose called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is very well described by the things that John is saying. The Gnostics were people that cl claimed a special knowledge, that they claimed a special relationship to God, that they claimed a secret kind of knowledge that uh, wasn't available to everybody, that you really had to come to them to get the inside track. And they took the scriptures and they sliced them up and they uh, altered them and changed them to suit their needs and distorted them in many ways. And they, many people went to follow them. But they weren't the only ones. There were also people called the Docetics who argued something like, uh, Jesus only seemed to be the Son of God. They taught false things about Him. And there are still others that we could go down the list. And the point, the reason why I'm bringing all these up is because they've all been candidates. They've all been presented as possible uh, representatives of the people that John writes against. And yet, none of them likely were, for they all arose sometime after John's life. But the point in all that is that John's writing here is so applicable in any situation where we're confronted with false teaching. And the proof is that so many have wondered if he's even writing about all of these groups that came later. 
because he seems to be describing them and the things that they say and the things that they teach. And we could carry that all the way on through 2,000 years to our own day and see that John, the things that he's writing, are broadly applicable to every form of false teaching in our own time. For every form of false teaching shares this in common. It teaches us to look away from God and look to ourselves, to root our salvation in something we do or something we know or some kind of relationship we have with some other group of people. And every false teaching teaches us to look at ourselves and think that we are somehow great, to have positive thoughts about who we are and to have a, uh, an evaluation of self that is mainly positive. And yet the true gospel says, no, you're a sinner. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. And the good news is not that somehow that's not true of you. The good news is that Savior is given. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's our advocate. Christ the righteous, who made propitiation for the unrighteous, that we might become righteous. And so, as we read John in the weeks to come, let us learn from John how to discern truth from error, not only as we look into our world and consider the things that we hear on the radio and see on television or find on the internet, but also as we look inwardly at ourselves, so that we might learn from John how to examine ourselves and then find assurance and encouragement that indeed we do have eternal life, for we are those who have trusted in a sure and certain Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work these truths into our minds and our hearts, that you would make us like you by conforming us to the image of your Son, that you would make us to be a people who readily confess our sins, that we would be a people who look to you for forgiveness and who trust in your perfections, in your perfect faithfulness and your perfect righteousness and your perfect kindness and perfect love. May we be such a people as we learn from your word how to trust you and how to live this life by faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, who is our advocate, who is the righteous one, who is the one who made propitiation for us. It's in his name that we pray and because of him that we can come before you. Amen.